as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one point in time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and gratifying its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I want you to see this. If you go to verse 2, as for you, you were dead, past tense. I want you to underline that, highlight it. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, in which you used to live. We're going to talk about these two today. Were dead, you used to live. Put a tag on this text, and today I want to wrestle with this thought. I am 100% saved. Look at somebody around you. Say, somebody. I am 100% saved. Look at somebody else. Say, somebody else. You are 100% saved. If you believe in it, agree with it. Come on, give God praise as you take your seats this morning. I'm 100% saved. You may be seated even in the presence of our God. I am 100% saved. Those of you who know it or not, I drove, when I originally moved here, I drove from Rhode Island to California. It was a 48-hour drive, and it was, it was a drive, a drive I'd never do again. And one of the reasons I never do it again, because I had to drive through Wyoming. I see why ain't no black people in Wyoming. I really do, because it was, it was, ugh, it was, ugh, it was Wyoming. It's like, you know, ever been someplace where it just looks like their name? It was Wyoming, and exactly what you thought was in Wyoming was Wyoming. It was just plateaus and desert places. It was so weird because when we started driving through Wyoming, it was snowing, right? It was snowing. And then midway, it was flat and it was just bare. It was brown. It was negative. It was ugly. It just looked like their name. And it was a desert. It was 100 degrees. And then randomly, it just snowed. And I was just like, I wanted to get out of Wyoming. And we spent a good nine hours driving the long way through Wyoming. I would never do that again. And so when we drove through this, my best man at my wedding, who was my driving buddy, we were talking about retirement. And we were like, man, like, what are we going to do in years, years to come and all this type of stuff after our kids go to college and all this type of stuff. And I said, man, you know what? I want to buy land in Wyoming. Because I was on Redfin, and the land was like $5,000. You get like six acres. I was like, I just want to buy the state of Wyoming, right? Because it was cheap. And I'm like, I want a house. And the thing is, I was like, I don't know how anyone will visit me because literally the nearest airport was like six hours away in Salt Lake. I was like, anybody going to come? I don't know how I'm going to get water. I don't know how I'm going to get electricity. All I know is I can live in Wyoming, right? And I was like, why not retire in the middle of nowhere? Because it's the desert. It's hot. It's steaming. It's windy. It was the literal ugliest place I've ever been in my life. And yet... In the middle of the desert, there was land for sale. There was possibility. There was no desert place where something isn't possible. Even Isaiah says that God makes streams and ways in the wilderness and in the desert. For some of you in the room today, you look at your life and your life feels like it's a desert place. It feels bare. It feels barren. It feels like nothing is possible. And yet, here's what I want to show you today. Prophetic work is able to look at desert places and see that God still provides. There's rivers, there's streams, there's possibility even in the desert. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, church, we're smack dab in the middle of the desert. 
This text is a dark and dim and dreary place. This text is often used as a cushion between the next six verses because if you keep reading past verse 3, you'll get to how we are made alive in Christ, how we are, verse 10, we are the workmanship of God, how in verse 20, Christ is the chief cornerstone. If you keep reading Ephesians chapter 2, there's so many beautiful places of Scripture where we can rejoice. I'm God's workmanship. I'm made alive in Christ. Christ is my cornerstone. Everything comes out of this. Like There's so many beautiful things in a Ephesians chapter 2, but in order to get to all of that, I think every once in a while we got to look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. And simply put in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, we get the simplicity straightforward of what life was like before Jesus came into our lives. Now I know, y'all in the room today, y'all are super saved. Not just saved, but you're super saved. I know none of y'all, I never know anything about this, but let me talk about all the rest of us in this room today. We got an Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 testimony. And Ephesians 2 says this, And we all were dead in our transgressions and dead in our sins when we followed the ways of the world and followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This text punches us in the face, and I love it. Because what this text shows us is that it makes us focus on purely looking at Jesus. It gives us, it graces us with an opportunity to remember what life was like before we met Jesus. Because before we met Jesus, we were living, Paul says, a spiritual death. We were dead and we found life in dead things. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and we were dead in our sins. We were deader than dead in the desert full of sin because we were comfortable with lifeless things. And Paul looks at all of us. He looks at the saints in Ephesus. He looks at every single one of you, people who are now alive in Christ and says we are not dead in our sins now because we are alive in Christ if we trust that we are holding on to the spiritual blessings that we have in chapter 1. And Paul says you were dead in your transgressions but you're still worthy, you're adopted, you're predestined, you are sealed with the Holy Ghost. But in order to grab hold and grasp the immense reality of what it means to be blessed now, every once in a while, you've got to take a moment and remember, at one point in your life, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sin. And Paul suggests here, before we get to these massive prayers in chapter 3, before We learned about how we're Christ's workmanship. Before we rejoice that we are made alive in Christ, before we rejoice that Christ is the chief cornerstone, Paul suggests that without a healthy acknowledgement of our spiritual death, we cannot heal ourselves. And without a truthful telling of our spiritual death, we cannot heal other people. Too often we run so fast that we want to talk about all the things that God is doing now that we forget where we were before you met Jesus in the first place. And I know some of y'all got wings under your suit coat jacket and you got your, you've left your halo in your car. But a whole lot of us in this room can testify, I wasn't dead physically, but I was dead spiritually. And every once in a while I've got to remember if it had not been for the Lord on my side, I don't even want to know where I'd be. Paul transitions to say, you're not dead physically, but I don't want you to forget that at one point in your life, you didn't really want to talk about Jesus. Now, y'all can act like this this morning. You didn't really want to come to church. You didn't want to talk about no Jesus. You didn't want to crave the gospel. You didn't want to worship the Lord and then worship the Lord in spirit and in truth because we were all sinners who made willful, sin-filled choices to undermine the will of God. And Paul says what that does is one thing that leads to spiritual death. What is spiritual death, Paul says? Spiritual death is separation from God. 
Consider Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve ate the tree of good and evil, they did not physically die. Their perfect relationship with God was broken. And that transported them out of the garden. When God came along and said, who told you you were naked? But because they broke their relationship with God spiritually, they had a spiritual death. They began to see what guilt and shame looked like. Guilt and shame didn't show up when you have a perfect relationship with God. Spiritual death is total and complete separation from fellowship with God even while you're still living. That means living life daily without God is a living death. And Paul takes time to describe this spiritual death in verses 1 through 3. Now hear me. It's really easy for me to jump to verse 4. But God made us alive. Easy for me to jump to verse 10. But we are his workmanship. But church, I believe every once in a while, life-changing preaching and teaching sometimes sits in the frustrating tension of verses 1 through 3. Every one of us has a and we were dead testimony. But let me speak to those of you in the room today. You're like, hey, Pastor Justin, I don't even know what in the world is. I don't, you talk about sin. My first time coming to church. Let me tell you something. You're in a great place. If you don't know Christ, never given your life over to Christ, this is a great moment for you. And here's what I want you to understand. I am not here to guilt you. That's what Satan does. I want to give you the gospel. And I want you to know that no matter where life has positioned you, no matter where you are in your journey, there's hope in Jesus. There's rest in Jesus. And for some of you in the room today who are church members but never given your life over to Christ, but you've given yourself over to a church, I want to tell you this. There's still hope in Jesus and there's rest in Jesus. I want to pastor a church full of Christians, not church members. And Paul says there are three things that a spiritually dead life has. The three things in a spiritually dead life, number one, church, is the, we value the world more than Jesus. We are living under the authority of Satan, and we are craving the desires of our flesh. Grab your Bible so you know I'm not making it up. So let's read the text. So what happens in a spiritually dead life? Verse 2 says this, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Paul's literal translation in this text is this very present age. The context, remember, Ephesus was a satanic petri dish. Ephesus was known for satanic chants, satanic rituals, satanic practices. So when Paul visited Ephesus some 10 years earlier, they were controlled by the people and the ways of living. Not to mention, they worshiped Diana and other idol gods. So much so, y'all, there were two massive temples, two massive arenas in Ephesus that thousands and thousands of people would go into to worship idol gods. And then some 10 years beyond, Ephesus was becoming a place filled with false teachers who were using the growth of the local church for their own benefit to manipulate people for their own selfish gain. And what Paul comes back and says, he says, that, my friends, is spiritual darkness. When we are consumed with sex, we are consumed with idolatry, when we are consumed with the love of money, when we are consumed with the world's value system, when we are more consumed with the world's value system than we are with the will of God, Paul says, that, my friends, is spiritual darkness. The moral and ethical system of the world was held higher than God's will. And the issue that they had in Ephesus was success in the world meant more to them than community and success with Jesus. And Paul says, if you want to know how dead people live, that's how dead people live, under the influence of the world system. This is not sex, drugs, and alcohol. This is literally saying, I trust what someone in politics says about me more than I trust what God says about me. I trust what my boss thinks about me more than what God has already spoken over me, that I'm worshiping somebody else's words over 
over me because I don't trust what God already said about me. And Paul says, whenever we have given ourselves over to the world system against God's system, you are living a spiritual death. And Paul says, and if you want to know what it feels like, all of us at one point or another were just like that. We lived under the world system more than we trusted God's will. If you don't believe me, let me tell you it doesn't work. Look at the text on the screen. 1 John chapter 2 puts it like this. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Why? Because love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. This is not Justin's opinion. I'm just giving the Bible to y'all. Love of the world system squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all of its wanting and wanting and wanting is on its way out, but whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. I really want you to see the word of God today, church, that whenever we have more love for the world and popularity and sex and, and comparison, then we are squeezing out of our bosom the love that we have for the Father. So whenever we do that, we are not giving ourselves the space to love God fully. And we don't have to go to Ephesus to see the same value systems that we have in the world today. Too many of our lives are guided by the same value systems we saw in Ephesus. Think about relationships. I'm going to come down your street in your alley, in your kitchen. I'm going to might as well do it today. In relationships, we see sex as an idol. The kids are across the street, so I can talk how I feel like talking this morning. We So you get what we used to do on the fifth date. We do them before we even know somebody's name. I wish I had somebody. Swipe right and swipe left. Sex becomes the center of our relationships that we don't even know who somebody is. We live and go to work daily, day after day, comparison, worshiping at the idol and the altar of what somebody thinks about me. The love of money becomes an idol for some of us. And that Christ and Christian practices do not guide us. They're just an auxiliary thing we do on Sunday for two hours. Paul says, I want you to consider that before you knew Jesus, you found too much value in what the world said about you that you don't even care what God thinks over your life. Paul says that, my friends, is spiritual death. Not only is that spiritual death, and Paul says number two, verse two continues, not only is spiritual death um, only by the values of the world, but secondly, spiritual death is living under the authority of Satan. Look at verse two. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Let me be very clear, church. We have a real enemy. And it ain't your boss. It ain't your ex from college. Your real enemy is Satan. Mm-hmm. I know we don't like to talk about Satan, but I want to talk about Satan. Because the reason we get comfortable with Satan is because somebody wants to name Satan. So we have a real enemy, which is Satan. And Paul takes time to intentionally talk about the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Paul says that ruler was consistently at work in the life you used to live. And that spirit is still at work, God, in those who are disobedient. A lot of us, under the sound of my voice, myself included, have a longer life apart from Jesus than we have walking with Jesus. Satan has been close to you. And so Paul says that spiritual death is living under the authority of Satan. So let's talk about Satan. Because I want us to have an accurate and effective understanding of how Satan is at work so we don't miss out that Satan is at work. 
Because it's easy for us to cast off Satan. You know, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but like every generation, like my generation, generations after me, generation before me, we take a moment and just go read the book of Leviticus out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden, we have this faux religiosity that Satan's in tattoos and clothes and sex. Let me tell you something. That's nothing but distractions. So if we go to scripture on Satan, Satan don't care about your tattoos. Some of y'all get mad at me right now, but I really don't care. About your tattoos, your clothes, or your sex. Let me tell you something. The ways that Satan works and distractions. And if he can get the church distracted to put down another generation, or if he can get the church distracted to put down other people, if he can get the church distracted to ostracize certain social, political, and social cultural people, if we get the church distracted, Satan is winning. So I want to show you today, church, five plots of Satan that at work in the world. So I want you to write these down. I want you to see these scriptures. I'm so serious because this is how we war. We don't war by fighting people. We war in the spirit and we'll see that in Ephesians chapter 6. So here are five plots of Satan. Number one, Satan is the accuser of the saints. Get your Bibles. Everybody get your Bibles. Go to Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see what Satan does. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 says this, then, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. So here's the, the grandi grandiose part of God. For the accuser of our brothers and saints, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. It's interesting to me that the text says that Satan goes to God day and night, at least twice a day. It makes me wonder, does Satan talk to God more than some of us talk to God? Oh, I ain't scared of none of y'all. I said, does Satan talk to God more than you talk to God? It's the same thing we see in Job chapter 2. This is what he did to Job. He was going, what does Satan do? Job chapter 2, verse 2. And he was going to and fro, roaming the earth. Satan's defeat is sure. We see that in Revelation 12. But his accusations have not stopped. Satan accuses us before God. But the good news is Jesus is our advocate who intercedes for us. Satan's the accuser of the saints. Number two, Satan loves lying. Satan loves lying. Go to John chapter 8. The first time we see Satan appearing in the Bible is in Genesis 3. And the first words off his mouth are suspicious. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat it? Because he's, he's conniving with his words. So Jesus comes back in John 8 and 44 and says this, when he lies, when Satan lies, he speaks according to his own nature. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. John says Satan has nothing to do with the truth because the truth ain't in him. Satan's goal, church, is to lie to you to keep you off course from the will of God. Deception, falsehoods, stretching the truth, getting you off course, getting you distracted from what God is trying to take you to. Number three, Satan puts blinders on the minds of unbelievers. Everybody go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see this. Satan puts blinders on the minds of unbelievers. If you guys can't tell, one of the places of my heart is I love those who are far from God, those who are disconnected from God, unbelieving saints. Satan's goal is to make sure that they are blinded to the light of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. When you talk about God, lowercase g, God, idols of this age, the idols of this age, 
have blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see this? Satan's one goal is to put blinders on those who don't know Jesus so they will never see the light that brings them out of the darkness that sin has them held into. So Satan not only speaks what is false, Satan hides what is true. Really want us to see this. He keeps us from seeing the treasure of the gospel. He makes us see facts. He makes us want to prove the gospel. we got to historize Jesus. Satan makes sure that unbelievers never see the light of glory that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you've got to tell your testimony. Hallelujah. That's why you have to speak truth to power. That's why you never shut up telling somebody how good God is to you. Because what you're doing is you are taking the sunglasses off those who are far from God so they can see the light in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know this sounds real fire and brimstone, but I ain't got much to give you. Church, the reason we all are here this morning is because you're walking in the light. The reason when we leave out of this church on on, on Sunday afternoon and go to work on Monday is so we can take the blinders off unbelievers and let them know that Jesus is the light of the world. That's why John came back in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. That which also with God in the beginning in verse 4. In him was life. And the life of Jesus is the light to all mankind. And the light of Jesus shines in darkness that darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus. Satan cannot defeat Jesus. All he can do is put blinders on you so you don't see the light of Jesus. But our responsibility is to take the blinders off so somebody knows that I'm here because of Jesus, I'm standing because of Jesus, I'm moving because of Jesus, and can't nobody do me like Jesus. Satan puts blinders on the minds of unbelievers. He wants to keep them distracted. He wants to keep us distracted so we don't trust the light that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, Satan does signs and wonders. Matthew chapter 7, put it like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform miracles? And Jesus says in verse 23, I'll say to them plainly, I don't know you. Away from me. Church, remember, the problem was not the signs and wonders weren't real. The problem was they were doing magic in the service of sin. That's why, you guys have noticed about me, I am unafraid to call out false prophets from this pulpit. Because in Ephesus, there were soothsayers and magicians who did signs and wonders. The reason we can is because what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, we have wisdom and revelation. So I'm not moving from my ego, I'm moving from what God said. And when we trust what God said, there's a difference between trusting what God said and trying to build your pocketbook. Okay, come here, come here. Word Network, TBN. I said there's certain reasons where you move upon what God said and when you're trying to build your pocketbook. Let your confidence not be grounded in anything that is not the word of God. Even real signs and wonders happen when magicians try to perform something, but when they perform it, they take it and they move forward. Jesus says, You can do that if you want to, because Satan does magic tricks too. But the reason we can move differently is because we have wisdom and revelation. And fifthly and finally, Satan tempts people to sin. Satan tempts, Matthew chapter 4, he tried it with Jesus. It was unsuccessful. 
Luke 23, he did it with Judas, and he was successful. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul warns us against believers, I'm afraid the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, and your thoughts are led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan tempts, changes God's language to you, and anything that is built in sin, James chapter 2 tells us, will always lead to death. So church, I want us to know this about Satan so you can recognize when Satan plots something against you. But here's what I want you to remember. In any time you ever experience or see something that Satan wants to do near you or close to you to put blinders on you, I want you to see this. Go to Isaiah 54. I want everyone to see this and underline this text. Go to Isaiah chapter 54. And I want you to see this word. A lot of times we quote this scripture, but if you read the full motion of the text, it'll blow your mind. Isaiah 54 verse 16 and 17 says this. See, it is I, God, who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flames, who forges a weapon fit for his work. Do you see this? God created the blacksmith who makes the weapon. Then God says also, I created the destroyer, Satan, to wreak havoc. So here's what the thing is. No weapon the destroyer ever makes against you will ever work against you. I wish I had a witness in here. And every tongue that accuses you, I'll make sure it's refuted. I'm leaving a heritage with you because vindication comes from me. I wish y'all saw this. He says here, a lot of times I think we isolate this text so no weapon formed against me. Hold up. God says, I'm the one who gave the vision for the destroyer to the destroyer to even wreak havoc so every weapon he makes will never work because I didn't give him authority to let anything work. Everything he says against you, I'm not giving it authority to have power over you because everything you need is going to be vindicated by me. Church, I want you to know, Satan can try it, but it's never going to work. Satan can try, but he's never going to win. Satan can try, but it's never going to overcome you because God is the one who gave him the authority to wreak havoc in the first place. But just because he gave him the movement doesn't mean it's ever going to work because Isaiah 54 says that nothing he creates will ever work against you. So I want you to spend more time worshiping Jesus instead of worrying about where Satan is in your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So the last thing he says here, is then not only at the spiritual death, is the last is the desires of your own flesh. And Paul reminds us that when we were dead, we lived under that authority. We did not, none of us, have a pass from that reality. And look at verse number three. All of us lived under the authority, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following our, its thoughts and its desires. I want to tell you this. Spiritual death is universal. No one is exempt from spiritual death. No one gets a pass. Because at one point in time, every single one of us lived under this authority when we had conscious lives of sin that created distance between us and God. And Paul says, when we were in sin, we were enslaved to the corruption of our flesh. It's amazing there the word flesh in this text in verse number three. It literally translates to be a metaphor for a self-centered life. Consider Stephen Fowle, he says this, the flesh is equivalent to total selfishness, self-interest, self-promotion, self-gratification. That we, are pa- we were passionately interested in our own good and unable to do anything but sin against God. Paul showing us that we sinned internally and we sinned externally and subject to the wrath of a righteous God. Oh my God, Pastor Justin, you've been gone for a month and your first sermon back is about sin and Satan. Go ahead. You wanted to laugh at that. You know you did. You were like, oh, my God, I invited my friends to church, and this Negro got up here 
and talked about sin and Satan. I got to oh I got to take my friends out to eat. We got to we get a drink after this because I I told them he was funny, but oh my god, sin and Satan. <laughs> I preached this for a few reasons because the same reason Paul did it. One of the responses he writes is a precursor to us so we never forget how bad life was before Jesus. And I don't think we do a good enough job, church, really grasping what life was like without Jesus. That we really were dead in sin. We were far from God. And understanding that how far we were from God ought to make you rejoice that you're connected to him right now. And until we honor how bad off we really were, we cannot rejoice of the blessing of where we are right now. And Paul says exactly what he does in this text. He says, this is what ought to keep us humble. This is what ought to keep us on our knees. This is what makes us come to church every single Sunday. This is what makes me sing every single week. This is what makes me rejoice in the cross. This is what makes me excited about communion. This is why we preach Jesus and him crucified. This is why I'm unashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. This is why I get dressed up, come to church, sit down, and lift up my hands. This is why I come to worship every week. This is why I've got to read my Bible. I was dead in my transgressions, but now I'm alive in the Lord Jesus. At one point in my life, I didn't want to talk to Jesus. At one point in my life, I was led by Satan. At one point in my life, I wanted my flesh more than I wanted Jesus. But the reason I can shout right now, I was dead, but I'm still alive. I wish I had somebody. I was far, but now I'm close. Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. For grace bought my liberty. I shall not know why he loves me so, but he looked beyond all of my faults. Am I talking to anybody in the building who can remember your BC life and thank God that, that I was dead, I was gone, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more, but the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. I was dead. I'm not dead. I was gone, but I'm still up because God redeemed my soul. So I shout today because I live to tell my story. I wish I had a witness. I shout this morning because I live to tell my story. With all the alcohol you drink, you ought to give God praise. Your liver still intact. With all the weed you smoke, you ought to give God praise that your lungs still intact. With the strokes you had and you made it to worship, with the relationships you went through, the pain you endured, I live to tell my story. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. So I'm 100% saved from the penalty of what I did. I'm 100% saved from the penalty of what I thought. I'm 100% saved from the penalty of what I said. I'm 100% saved from the penalty of where I went. And it is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others, he'll do for you too. High five somebody around you and tell them I'm 100% saved. You know, we have revivals, and we have all these church things, but I think every once in a while, we got to have a thank God I'm saved meeting. 
I know, I can give you a bunch of stuff. I, I went to school, I promise you, I went to school, I got a whole bunch of degrees. But every once in a while, I think we open the doors of the church up, Deacon, just have a thank God I'm saved meeting. Because when I look back over my life and know where my life should be, I thank God I'm not where I ought to be because I am where God needs me to be. Thank God I'm saved. Thank God I'm blood washed. Thank God I'm sanctified. Thank God I'm filled. Am I talking to anybody in the building who can take 10 seconds, open up your mouth and thank God that you're saved? Paul says, you you were dead (laughs) I said you were dead you were dead you're not still dead but you were I wish I had a witness I ain't I ain't got nothing else to give you. You were out. I wish I had. You were sinking. You were dead. You were distracted. But I'm still here. Matter of fact, I'm done. I'm going to read the Bible and get out of here. Look at, put Philippians 3 on the screen. I want you to see this from Paul. Paul says this in Philippians 3. Paul says, listen, so here's the thing. I'm not saying that I have it all together. Paul says, I, I, is that your testimony too? I ain't saying I'm about to throw a party for my day ones. I said, I ain't saying I got it all together. I'm not saying that I got it made. But let me, here's my testimony. I'm well on my way. I wish I, I, wish I had somebody in this building. I'm, I'm not where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I was. I'm well on my way. I wish I had somebody in the building who could put your mind on rewind and thank God I'm not where I was, but I'm well on my way. I don't smoke it like I used to. I don't sex it like I used to. I don't. I wish I had a witness. I don't text it like I used to. I'm not prideful like I used to be. I'm not where I was, but I'm well on my way. So please be patient with me. God ain't through with me, but I'm well on my way. I wish I had somebody who could help me close this sermon and thank God that you're well on your way. That's why you got the promotion. You're well on your way. That's why your marriage is together. You're well on your way. That's why you keep getting engagements because you're well on your way and walk together children. Don't you get weary because I'm well on my way. (laughs) Paul says, I'm, I'm on the way. And I, I remember my dead life, but because I've been blessed by God, I can rejoice. I'm not where I was. And I've been redeemed from the effects of the sins that I've committed, and I've been united with the God who loves me. So what does that mean? What shall we do? How shall we live then, Pastor Justin? Let me give you two quick things. Number one, I didn't get here at first service. Number one, Your story unites you with other people. We got to have testimony service. I just want to hear testimony. I said, your story unites you with other people. Because some of y'all right now, this is good. Some of y'all got Holy Ghost amnesia. So I'm trying to remind you, everybody in this room got a story. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Everybody in this room got a story. But I'm well on my way. Paul puts it like this. He says to them, your story unifies you with other people and doesn't divide you. Because we're all alike in one way. We were all dead in our transgressions. Ah, come here. All of us got an ugly story. 
all of us been covered by the blood. How dare you hate another covered person? I wish I, I wish I had a witness in here. We all were dead. But all of us had access to the cross. Paul says, every single one of us has spiritual blessings. And none of us were qualified for the blessings God gave us. We all were dead. Hallelujah. But the reason we can tell the story now is because we've been redeemed from the penalty of the stuff that we did. Now remember, the goal of the book of Ephesians was to minister to a unique divide in God's people, the Jews and the Gentiles. So Paul is telling them, listen, if God can reconcile you to God, surely he can reconcile Jews and Gentiles. Okay, if God could reconcile you to himself, mm -hmm, he can show enough help heal that relationship you broke back in high school. If God can reconcile you to him, oh, he can, he can bring you and your mama back together. Oh, I know it's hard, but if God could do that, and you know where you were, surely he can heal the assumptions in a text message you sent. Come here. God did a great work in all of us. God healed you so you can heal other people. He restored you so you can heal, restore other people. How many times have we rejected the active work of Jesus to show reconciliation and restoration because we love talking about brokenness instead of wanting to heal what God, what's been broken? What relationships in your life are broken because you're comfortable with them being broken? Oh, I mean, you know, you text about brokenness all the time. Girl, I wish he would call me. Bruh, I wish he would show up. I hope he, because I got something to say. I want to lay hands and not raise hands. What relationships are guided by your assumptions and presumptions about others? What relationships in your life don't reflect the work that Jesus has done in your life? If Jesus can restore you to him, he can restore your family. He can restore your marriage. He can restore your children. He can restore your home. He can restore your money. He can restore your peace. He can restore your future. What relationships do you need to actively engage in restoration so that you can understand the restorative work of Jesus? Who do you need to text this week? Now, who's the person you promise you take them to coffee and you never followed up? Mm-hmm. You know, I tore my meniscus, I had surgery, and I hated, oh my God, I hated when I had surgery. I, I tore my ACL in one leg, I tore my meniscus in the other playing football, and uh, my doctor came to me, they said, who's driving you home? Because you can't drive home all high on anesthesia and on these crutches. I, didn't, I took my driving leg away from me, I was hurt, but I had to be humble enough to let somebody else fill in the gap of my brokenness. I was hurt, and I had to be humble. Let me tell you this. Somebody has to take the first step. I'm trying to help somebody's home today. Some of y'all are uncomfortable, and I ain't scared of none of y'all. My name is Justin Lester, and I approve this message because I know you're tired of taking the first step. But that's why God made you the bigger person. Somebody got to take the first step. And let me tell you, the reason we know it works is because while I was dead in my transgressions, he went on a cross for me. And if I'm here to imitate Christ, sometimes you've got to be the one to take the first step. Send the first text message, show up at the person's house, invite them out to dinner. Let me tell you a secret. The reason relationships hurt is because you want the relationship and the reconciliation back. 
lower your pride. If Jesus can fix it between you and him, oh my God, he can fix it between you and your mama. If he can fix it between you and him, he can fix it with you and your daddy. If he can fix it between you and him, he can fix it with that teacher, that loved one, or that person. If Jesus can reconcile a relationship with you, surely you can send a text message. Someone say yes. Number two, your story unifies you with yourself, with someone else, and your story unifies you with yourself. We were dead in transgressions. Now, I understand me speaking this level of death and destruction is hard to hear for some of us because it unearths thoughts of your past. Stories for some of you, you haven't even told yourself because you haven't healed from it yet. Some of you have not talked about some of this stuff in therapy. I'm reminding you of old stories, like stories of, I'm going to call it, the kids are in kids' church. Oh, my God, I love it. Stories of your pornography usage, adultery, affair, embezzlement, prideful decisions, wrongful sexual encounters, abuse committed, abuse received, violence inflicted, troublesome language, self-harm, and harm against other people. Some of you are afraid of certain people texting you because your heart rate races just to see their name in their phone. Some of you are afraid to come to church sometimes because of certain cars you see outside that you double-check the license plate before coming into worship. You're afraid of certain people calling you, but let me tell you, some of you pray before you go on a trip because you know what you said to someone and you hope they didn't show up and you fear the encounter because you know the part you played in the frustrating nature of the relationship and maybe the reason some of you haven't spoken is because you haven't reconciled the sin that you committed against somebody else it wasn't that your flesh made you do it or the devil made you do it you were living from an unhealed place and Paul says you were dead I was dead but that was my last chapter because my last chapter told me what I was and the reason I know how to pray now and the reason I understand the scent of grace and the reason I understand the texture of peace is as because I was dead but I'm not still dead I was that person but I'm not still that person and when you reconcile your story to yourself you realize that that was your last chapter but not your current chapter I was but I'm not still and I want you to lean back into who God's called you to be because you are not your worst mistake you are God's workmanship I want to unify you with yourself I want you to stop being afraid of your own possibility. I want you to revive yourself. Don't be afraid of yourself. Don't be afraid of what your sin let you do. But now be able to say, it was grace that found me. It was grace that kept me. It was grace that's leading me. It was grace that's dragging me. I'm not afraid of myself because of my failure. I'm not afraid of myself because of my mistake. I'm not afraid of my future because of my past. But if God can reconcile me, I'll reconcile myself. I want you to quit being afraid of who you are. I want you to quit being afraid of the fullness of who you are. I want you to quit being afraid not just of your future, but of what somebody may think of your past. I want you to quit being afraid of it. Here's why. Because you've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. Woo, Jesus, I'm ready to go, has changed your life. And if anybody asks you what you, oh, who you are now, you tell them I'm one word. I'm redeemed. I've been covered. And God has filled in the gaps of all of my sin. I'm redeemed. I'm covered. And God is dragging me into my future. I'm redeemed. 
redeemed, I'm covered, and God is writing my story. I'm redeemed, I'm covered, and I'm going up the king's highway. Am I talking to anybody in the building who can say, God, thank you for my story. Thank you for my failure. Thank you for my mistakes. Because if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in his word could do. And I know I'm talking to somebody in the building who says, just Pastor Justin, if I ever were to tell my story, somebody would judge me. But let me tell you, no one would judge you because the reason you have a story is what we sang before the sermon, that Jesus went to Calvary to save a wretch like you and me. That's love. They hung him high and they stretched him wide. He hung his head in the locks of his shoulders and he died. But that's love because that's not how your story ends. Three days later, he got up again. So the reason I walk like this, the reason I preach like this, is because I've been loved by God. Is there anybody in the building that knows your story but can give God praise that he loves you in spite of you? He talks to you in spite of you. He calls your name in spite of you. And the reason we're here is because God has smiled on me. God has smiled on me. I wish I had some folk who know you got skeletons in your closet. I wish I had somebody who know you got warrants on your name to begin to give God glory that he loves you in spite of you. He cares for you in spite of you. He covered you in spite of you. And the reason I'm here is I've been saved. I've been washed. I've been cleansed. I've been set apart. I've been covered. I've been redeemed. I'm predestined. I've been sealed. I'm adopted. I'm saved. I've been covered. I'm blood washed. I'm headed to heaven. I'm going somewhere. Is there anybody here glad that you're saved that can toss your head back, open up your mouth, and give him glory that you're saved, that you're saved, that you're saved, you're saved, yeah! I am 100% saved. Everybody's standing, everybody's standing. 